Today's Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3, and can be found on your handouts or on page 749 on the Church Bibles. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord was anointed the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. This is the word of the Lord. Today's New Testament reading comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Can be found on your handouts or on page 1182 of the Church Bibles. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fulfillness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were en enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body to death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from his accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Aaron. Excellent reading. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. It is such a treasure. And as we hear it, we pray that you will give us the eyes of faith to see that which is eternal and unseen therein. Fill us with your treasure, we pray that uh, we might be uh, equipped for your service. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, greetings to you all. It's a great pleasure, as always, to be back with you today. And I thank you, Jean-Claude, for extending to me the invitation to come and to preach today. Greetings uh, also from Renata, my wife, uh, who wishes she could be here, but is... Uh, back in Antalya, occupied with various obligations. I had expected to see Tom and Lori Haugen and uh, Malia and uh, Annika and Jocelyn here today, but I don't think I do see them. They were with us 
back at Olive Grove. We said goodbye to them two weeks ago, looking thoroughly exhausted. Um, but I trust that by now they're uh, wonderfully uh, re-Swissified uh, and, and probably still enjoying nature somewhere today or unable to get here, perhaps. Tom and Lori, you may or may not know, are the pastors of our home church, of Renata's and my home church. Uh, and uh, having them with us in our 26th year of Olive Grove, working side by side with us, was, um, was a perfect case of a home church working harmoniously with their sent ones in common missional goals. And uh, it was, it was a, a great pleasure. And just to give you one quick example, uh, as a first devotional to the staff during orientation, I, uh, I, I looked at 1 Peter 5.5 5 and talked about uh, aproning ourselves with humility for service, uh, which is the image there, which I may come back to in a minute. And... Um, and then the next devotional I asked Tom to do, and, and Tom talked about, uh, you know, in, in kind of a, a great follow-up fashion, he talked about turning our tunics into towels from John 13 for, you know, foot-washing kinds acts of service. And, uh, and back and forth we went with Tom and, and me, uh, kind of like a, a devotional volley uh, on the court of Olive Grove. Uh, it, was, it was a delight. But before moving on from this pre-sermon topic of humility, let me elaborate briefly with regard to IPC's next pastoral season, which I understand is about to begin. First of all, congratulations uh, to you all. I, I know it's been a long wait and, uh, and a lot of work uh, to, to come to agreement uh, upon your next selected pastor. And, uh, and there are important steps in the process still to come. That is to say, uh, your welcome and onboarding of the pastor and his family will tend to set the tone for their entire time here. So it's, it's so important. And so I, I take you back for a moment to 1 Peter 5.5, 5, where... After Peter descends from this, this mountaintop theological discussion uh, that uh, is in, say, 1 Peter 2, from which Tom preached a couple weeks ago, I listened to that sermon, he comes, he comes down and then zeroes in on relationships in the church. Because all that lofty theology, you see, it, it plays out in how I treat you and you treat me. And so he says in 1 Peter 5, 5, he says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And the image there that he uses is of a slave uh, putting on an apron, which was part of the slave's attire. So putting on his or her apron for for service, for their slave work. Kind of like, uh, to use an image from my family of origin, my servant-hearted mother would apron herself for meal preparation and service to her beloved family members and guests. 
And Paul, Peter here, he, he essentially uh, creates uh, in Greek this, he creates a compound word. You can tell he really put a lot of thought into this word choice and image. He creates this compound word to say, all of you, as it were, ought to apron yourselves for service toward one another, for unstinting service of one another. And beneath your apron straps, let there be the song and dance of joy. As I saw in Joan last night when she served me dinner. I say this because, honestly, I don't think there is any better way than you as a congregation could prepare for your next pastoral season than to concentrate on further cultivating among yourselves humility, which is the beginning and the end of all virtues. I'd also like to thank you as a church for your recent generous donations to earthquake relief in Turkey. I'm sorry for the trouble uh, that you had um, getting that money for earthquake relief to countries like Turkey and Syria. But it was put to immediate use and invoices were sent back to Jean-Claude. And thanks too for uh, your donations to SPCC and to the Mosaic Cultural Center project uh, in recent years. Mosaic is a brand new Christ-centered, gospel-bearing, six-story building in the heart of Antalya. And uh, it is uh, a place where since Jean-Claude and Joan came to our grand opening on April 1st, uh, church growth has already uh, taken place in, in large measure. Not one, but four different language churches have been started there since April 1st. And one of these is Russian-speaking. And uh, there in that Russian-speaking congregation, we have Ukrainians and Russians uh, peaceably worshiping together Sunday after Sunday. Uh, today, in fact, they had a big fancy dinner uh, on the upper, uppermost floor uh, having to do with um, kind of a marriage seminar. And uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, I was walking down a sidewalk and a Ukrainian woman whom I didn't know came up to me and she said, are you the one who uh, built Mosaic? And I said, well, a lot of others and me, yes, uh, a lot of others and I, I should say, pardon me, built Mosaic. And then she said, well, uh, I just want to thank you. It is such a beautiful building with so much potential, and I really appreciate uh, the Russian services that are being held there. And you're welcome, I said. Uh, but the thanks really needs to go to God, as well as to countless visionary donors who have enabled us to realize the project for the sake of the Lord's work in Antalya and beyond. Despite uh, numerous challenges and multifarious opposition in Turkey, uh, the church is growing there. It is growing markedly and encouragingly. And I hope that encourages you. And if you'd like to learn more about Mosaic and the St. Paul Cultural Center uh, and related opportunities, please pick up some material that uh, I trust, thanks to Nathan, is located in the back 
And if you'd like to send me an email to be in touch, please do so. Well, in preparation for this sermon, I reflected upon IPC and its 60-plus year history. And interestingly, um, the Turkish church also had its uh, origin in 1961. And I also got to thinking about the early church. And when the early church was the age of IPC and the Turkish church now, it had just reached the end of the first century, or the end of the apostolic age, which was a huge transition for the early church. And we might be, uh, tend to think that the early church at that time was growing in the Mediterranean world like ivy grows in these parts, uh, just kind of taking over. But, uh, but not so. Most likely, the early church grew at a much slower rate than we would tend to think. But that's beside the point. What is certain is that the early church went through far-reaching changes due its, uh, during its first 60 years. Think about it. The church was forced out of the synagogue, and what emerged was the ecclesia. Sunday gradually was replaced by Saturday as its day of worship. The Lord's Supper gradually replaced uh, the Passover as its ceremonial meal. Its name, the way, gradually gave way to Christianity and so forth. We could talk about major change after major change during the first century. But I would say that uh, the greatest change of all that the early church experienced during those early years was going from understanding Jesus of Nazareth as an extraordinary human being who died and reportedly rose from the dead to understanding him as he is described in passages such as Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. This change was absolutely unparalleled. In fact, I'd suggest to you that the propelling power of church growth, both then and now, was and is not some missiological strategy, but rather the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In 2004, a journalist with the Wall Street Journal came to Antalya to write a story regarding the St. Paul Cultural Center. And I'll never forget a conversation that he and I had in a taxi of all places. He was saying that he believes organization to be the key factor as to whether a new church or religious movement or political party succeeds or fails. And he got me thinking regarding the St. Paul Union Church, which Renata and I started in 1996, I responded that I believe the background work of the Spirit of God enabled that venture to have success. But of course, the Spirit of God could have indeed been at work through the organization of the church. Anyway, I'd now give a different response to that journalist 
whose name was uh, Hugh Pope, I would say to him uh, that in my opinion, Christology is the crucial factor of church growth. Our faith in the fullness of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. One of the rooms in our home in Antalya is a little library. And it is enriched with dozens of artifacts that I found while uh, freediving in the sea. However, among those artifacts is one that I didn't find, but I, I bought. It is an antique brass propeller that's about 80 years old. It has a, a lot of character, you know, mysterious uh, scuffs and scratches on it. You wonder how they got there. And when I look at it, it certainly propels my imagination. That propeller also illustrates for me what Christ has been to the church. Like most propellers, it has three blades, and Christ has three basic aspects to his existence. Each aspect comes out in today's poetic passage. Um, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is poetic in, in Greek. And ideally, the blades of these aspects should all be balanced upon the propeller hub of our faith. However, most believers, it seems to me, have these crucial aspects of who Christ is badly misbalanced. In fact, one blade of our faith in Christ tends to get the most uh, attention by far, while the other two blades tend to get minimal thought and focus, even during times of worship and uh, witness. The first blade, which is one that tends to get minimal attention and focus in the church, is the preexistence of Christ. Again, in 15 through 17, we read, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, in him all things hold together. Now, before Christ was incarnated as Jesus of Nazareth, he existed as the image of the invisible God, sharing in God's glory. As we learn in John chapter 1 and John chapter 17, verse 5, Christ always was and still is the exact visible representation of God. He illuminates for us God's essence. Through Jesus, we know best that, uh, that God is, is merciful and loving, holy and wise, and the eternal and almighty creator and redeemer. And what's more, Christ is the firstborn over all creation. That is not a reference to his birth in Bethlehem, but rather it is a reference to his unsurpassable status. He is before and above all things, things that were created, according to the passage, in him and through him and for him. 
The first word in the Hebrew Bible, in Genesis 1, verse 1, is Be-Rishit. And it means in the beginning. And the meaning of Be are basically in, through, and for, which gives a clear clue to the connection that Paul is making here. And the remainder of the word, Rishit, has the meaning of beginning some total, head, first fruits, all themes that are connected to Christ in these verses. Needless to say, composing this amazing poem, Paul, under the guiding influence of the Holy Spirit, was making creator-connecting, staggering statements regarding the preexistence of Christ. Verse 17 expands upon these statements. Christ is the one in whom all things hold together. Think about that. He, he is like the motherboard of the universe. He is the system behind and above all systems. When I was a boy, uh, it seems like every winter we would receive loads and loads of lake effect snow uh, there in Michigan where I grew up, kind of close neighbors with Minnesota back in the United States. And the city's snow plows would pile up massive amounts of snow. And uh, often uh, uh, at our school bus stop, we, we boys would go on top of these big piles of snow. We would arrive to the stop early and we would build these kind of makeshift castles on top of the banks, uh, the, the piles of snow. And uh, then we would proceed to play a favorite wintertime game called King of the Castle. And one boy would, of course, start in the castle, and then the other boys would attack because they would want the domination that the boy in the castle would have. And, and, uh, and, and the boys would attack, and of course, the more attacking and defending that was done, the more the castle itself was ruined. And, uh, and then the bus would come and uh, the game would come to an abrupt end. Anyway, friends, Christ, we might say, is not just king of the castle. He's king of the cosmos. by divine right. And he broke all the norms by which our old game was typically played. Christ willingly descended from his cosmos and from his dominion, and he identified with the strengthless and suffering ones. He demonstrated an unconditional outpouring of sacrificial love for their sake and for all who would believe in him. And then, then he shared with them his eternal kingdom. This brings us to the second blade, which represents the aspect of Christ's existence that receives, I think, the lion's share of our attention uh, in the church. The incarnate Christ. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the firstborn from among the dead, having made peace through his blood shed on the cross. The church celebrates the drama of Christ's uh, death and resurrection at least once a year at, uh, well, his incarnation as well, Christmas and, and Easter. And this is perfectly fitting because Christ is the source of and the sovereign over uh, the church. And this has implications for any church's stated purpose. The church does not primarily exist, for example, to meet the needs of its own members. Nor does the church exist to ensure its institutional survival for the next 60 years. No, the church, first and foremost, exists for Christ and for the fulfillment of his redemptive purposes. The Logos, the creative principle of the cosmos, embodied in Christ, thrives in the church as and only as the church bears the fruit of faith in the world through the preaching of the gospel and through our living worthily of life in Christ as the context of this passage makes clear. And what is the gospel? Well, sometimes it's helpful to consider the gospel not through Pauline terminology, but rather in Old Testament terms. When Jesus introduced himself and his ministry, as recorded in Luke chapter 4, he uses the first verses of Isaiah 61, where uh, we read, and I'll review some of what... Uh, Aaron read so beautifully. I hope I can read as well as he did. We read there, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That word good news there in the Septuagint is euangelion. It's the gospel. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, Doctors in our day and age can do incredible wonders uh, in battling heart disease, but only Christ can heal broken hearts. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Notice that there's a year of favor a day of vengeance. That proportion says a lot. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. And then, then we have three words in Hebrew uh, in the remainder of this passage that are in, an example of uh, metathesis, which is a, a figure of speech that, in which letters are transposed in a word to, to change them. And attention is drawn to those words because they're the same letters. It's a word play. And uh, 
the three words in the remainder of this passage are translated as uh, crown or garland, ashes, and splendor or glory. These words, same consonant letters, just transposed. Think anagrams. Uh, words with the same letters that are just changed. Words like evil, vile, and live. You see those in the same sentence or the same couple of sentences and they'll grab your attention, or they should. But here we have, to bestow on them, this is the ministry of Christ, a crown of beauty or a garland of grace instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his center. They will be called a planting of the Lord. It's not individual. We so quickly individualize salvation, don't we? They will be called a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. That's, that's the gospel in Old Testament terms. Through Jesus, dear friends, God washes away our ashes of mourning, giving us undeserved garlands of grace and oak-like righteousness and joy for not the individual, but the communal display of his effulgent glory. That's the gospel. Well, so far, I've tried to help you understand and appreciate more fully the, the mysterious, and it is a mystery, the, the mysterious pre-existence of Christ, as well as his incarnation and uh, the headship over the church, his body. But what about the rest of creation, apart from the church? Is Christ only reconciling or, or making right with God members of his church? those with what we refer to as saving faith in him? Or is there an even greater, grander aspect to this, to this marvelous work of reconciliation? Well, this brings us to the third blade, the, the universal Christ. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, his reconciliation will be universal. Which shouldn't be misunderstood as universalism, the belief that all people will eventually be saved. Uh, it seems very clear in scripture that some enemies of God will stubbornly exercise their God-given freedom right up till the end of time, and they'll be judged accordingly. However, it is also true that, and very clear in Scripture that, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That's not just a, a divine hope or wishful thinking on God's part. The king of the cosmos will somehow be universally acknowledged 
And what's more, creation itself is destined to be reconciled or harmonized to God in Christ. And this should compel us to love and care for all of God's creation because God does. And he will mysteriously but assuredly restore creation to the one in, through, and for whom it was made. If you don't mind, uh, one more childhood story <laughs> helps to illuminate this truth. On display in the living room of my boyhood home was a huge conch shell that my parents had received as a gift uh, when in the Dominican Republic when I was a, just a boy. And one Sunday, uh, I was at home. I, I used to just, especially Sunday afternoon because we'd gather in the living room, I would, uh, I would just be, you know, mesmerized listening to the sound of the sea inside that shell. I mean, it just seemed like a miracle to me. The sound of the sea was, was just kind of always there. And I once asked my father, uh, you know, Dad, what is um, that sound and where, where does it come from? And after a pause, during which I thought I had him, you know, without an answer, after a pause, he said, well, Jimmer, he used to call me Jimmer, he said, that sound is the Caribbean Sea saying to that shell, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. <laughs> Dear friends, if we could hear it, all of creation has such an echo. That of its creator saying, Come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. And the consummation of the reconciliation in Christ Jesus will finally put that echo to rest. This packed poem and the amazing letter in which it is couched were written to a little church in Colossae a church much younger and smaller than IPC is today. And this poem also applies to us. Paul writes, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That, dear friends, is key. And while it is a challenge for us all, it is more of a challenge for some than it is for others to not move from the hope held out in the gospel. I once interviewed for my research a young Turkish believer named Kamil, who was from Adana, Turkey, which is right next to Tarsus, where the Apostle Paul grew up. Not long after his conversion, Camille found himself in the ultimate test of faith. One Sunday, after others had left the church premises and he was about to lock up, which was his duty, five young Turkish men stayed behind 
and um, engaged him in conversation. And they talked and talked. And finally, Camil said, look, would you mind leaving? Because I have to lock up and I also have to leave. However, instead of leaving, they began to attack Camille, demanding that he deny Jesus as Lord or else die. Jesus is Lord, Camille said, determined not to be uh, intimidated. They began beating him and kicking him, reiterating the demand for his denial of the Christian faith. But he said all the more, Jesus is Lord. And then with a knife jabbed against his belly, they threatened him with one last ultimatum, deny Jesus or die. Jesus is Lord, Camille shouted. And then suddenly, they were gone. One of Camille's friends who had forgotten something in the church had just come back and re-entered the premises and that scared the attackers away. And during my interview with Camille, he said, this is, he said that this assault, instead of eroding his faith, fortified it. And this is what he said. If you ask me today what is the greatest blessing you've ever received from God, I'd say it was that incident that I was considered worthy of the honor of being tortured for Jesus Christ. That, friends, is truly a remarkable refusal to move from the hope that is held out to us in the gospel. The gospel is Christ, the pre-existent, incarnate, and universal Christ. He is the propeller of your Godward journey. And the propelling power of IPC is Christ, Christ, Christ. May I encourage you to motor along with him throughout this next pastoral season and beyond. Whatever happens, and whatever you do, friends, don't lose your propeller. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your work in our lives. By your Holy Spirit, who is graciously at work in each one of us, we pray that you'd make us to be more reliable and resilient followers of your Son, Jesus Christ. Fructify our faith so that we might live worthily of the merciful calling that we have received in him. Amen.